Uh, right, not fully brand new. Um, if you were here last week, Alicia kicks this series off. Um, and what we're looking at is echoes of Jesus. Where do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? And it's something that, um, that Alicia, Gareth, and I have been working on over the last few months in preparation for this series, which hopefully you'll, um, you'll enjoy and you'll see a lot of the three of us over the next period coming into Christmas. So let's take a moment and let's, uh, let's pray. Um, we prayed a lot of prayers about us. We sung a lot of songs about God's Spirit coming. And my real sense as we, as we come into this is that there isn't a separation between worship and word, but that God's Spirit would permeate every area of this service. So let's pray. Spirit, come. Spirit, come and be with us here in this time of listening to your word. Lord, I believe in the preparations that you've been with me, but I pray now as, um, as, as I speak, Lord God, that you would speak through me and that you would touch people's hearts with your word and what you want to say. Lord God, so for us as a congregation, God, give us soft hearts to hear from you this morning. Amen. Great. Now, has anyone ever seen one of those situations where you're walking along the street and someone walks past you heading the other direction and they've got a pet with them and you double take because the pet looks exactly like the owner? <laughs> has anyone ever seen that? Has anyone ever seen that? I mean, if you haven't, I've got some pictures for you. There's this gentleman here. It's definitely in the eyes. It's the eyes here, this guy. They're kind of in the cheeks. You can see it there. Next one, we've got uh, this lady. Look at that. Somehow she managed to find a dog with the exact same haircut. It's brilliant. Um, and this one? I mean, seriously. It's, it's unbelievable. The nose, it's just, it works brilliantly. And next up, yep. Ears and hair, again, it's a, it seems to be a common theme. Um, and then we've got uh, this reverend. Um, I'm not sure whether he chose the dog because of the, the dog collar or whether the dog is some kind of dog-based priest, um, you know, kind of performing absolutions for other dogs. Um, and then finally, I'm stretching the concept a bit here. I'm stretching it, but um, it was too cute not to, really. Um, yeah, whether you're a dog person or a, or a baby person, that's a beautiful picture just to look at there. Little baby Michelin man. It's beautiful, it's beautiful. And um, it's one of those interesting things that um, as, we, as we gaze upon something, we begin to look like it. In worship, we become like the thing that we worship. That's why worship is such an important part of our services, an important part of our expression of the Christian faith. That... Um, in worshiping God, we reflect more of his characteristics and more of him out in our lives and in society around us. We reflect more of him into the world. But if we dedicate our lives to worshiping the false idols around us, the things like consumerism or the God of self, then we reflect more of this kind of sinful nature back into the world. And I believe that this is what Paul was talking about when he said in Romans 6 that uh, the wages for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God has given us free will. He's given us the freedom to choose how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our energy. Free will, ultimately, over what we choose to worship, what we choose to put first in our lives. And with our choices, we can earn spiritual death, or through our choices and our decisions, we can receive eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's what it's saying there. And notice 
the difference. There is a real difference there. That death isn't doled out by God. It's not God who doles out death. But death is a choice. The wages of sin is death. It's earned. It's earned. But salvation is given, not earned. The gift of God is eternal life. You see the difference? One is earned, one is given. And it all links back to that choice around free will. And so there's a a passage in John's Gospel, in John 8, where Jesus is talking to a group of Jews. Jews who had believed in him. So it's an interesting point there that John, the writer of this gospel, pulls out. He said, these Jews have actually believed in Jesus. And he says, if you hold to my teachings, then you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? I want to stop here. I want to stop, because it seems like somebody's forgotten something, and we're not, uh, we're not first century Jews, okay, so this might not mean a lot to us, but um, never been slaves. We've never been slaves. We've never been slaves. I don't think that's true. I mean, right now, they are, they are under the, uh, the oppression of the Roman government, although they're not slaves. The Maccabees sorted that one out, if you're interested in some apocryphal writing. It's a delight, I'll tell you now. Um, but there's... They're currently under the Roman oppression. They've been exiled and enslaved in Babylon. And before that, of course, they were in Egypt. Slaves in Egypt. We have never been slaves. I think someone may have forgotten something here. And there's something important to realize. That when they miss that part, they're missing out a big bit of their history. And a big bit of their understanding of what it means to be the people of God. So when Israel arrived in Egypt, they were a distinct nation. In fact, they were meant to be a blessing to that nation. They weren't always slaves in Egypt. Through Joseph, Joseph the guy with the Technicolor Dreamcoat, everybody uh, know who we're talking about here? Uh, He saved the Egyptians, but not just the Egyptians, but the surrounding nations to Egypt from famine. And this is an amazing testimony of God saving these nations, and it's an amazing testimony of God working good for all those who love him. Now, I'll just do a bit of a backstory on on Joseph. Joseph was a bit of a dreamer. Has anybody got a brother or a sister? Brother or sister out there? Yeah, great. And you know those moments where they come and they they say, one day I'm going to be better than you at this, and you go, yeah, right, I don't believe you. But that's what happened with Joseph. He had a dream that he would rule over his brothers. They weren't keen on this idea, so he did some, or they did something that um, hopefully none of you did with your brothers and sisters, which was sold him into slavery. Anybody? No, I won't, I won't get anyone to own up to that question. Um, but that slavery leads into Egypt. In Egypt, he serves in the house of a guy called Potiphar. Potiphar has a wife. She thinks it'd be a great idea, because Joseph's obviously a good-looking fellow, to seduce him. He's having none of it, so she goes, he tried to seduce me. It's like, right, this is... Uh, It's a good irony that's going on here right now. And in prison, God continues to give Joseph the gift of interpreting dreams. He interprets dreams for another prisoner, a baker. The baker's like, yeah, I'll get you out of here, mate. He totally doesn't for quite a while. And then eventually he remembers that Joseph can interpret dreams. He interprets these dreams for the pharaoh of Egypt, the guy who's running the place. And Joseph ultimately becomes the prime minister of Egypt and puts in a plan to save Egypt and the surrounding nations. 
when Israel arrived in Egypt, they were meant to be a blessing. They were meant to be a blessing on that nation. In fact, the whole call of the nation of Israel was to be a blessing on the other nations. In Genesis 12, it says this, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. There's a real distinctive here about this group of people. There's a real distinctive about who God is calling to follow him. He's calling a group of people who are going to be a blessing, not just to themselves, but to all nations. But Israel forgot that distinctive. They forgot the reason why they were in Egypt. They forgot the, reason, the very reason why they were here on the earth. They were supposed to be that blessing. And when they forgot, those around them forgot too. And so Egypt forgot. And so they enslaved these people. And this is what it says at the beginning of Exodus. It says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built uh, Pitom and Ramses as store cities for the Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So they've gone from being a nation that blessed Israel, uh, Egypt and the surrounding nations to a nation that is being dealt with ruthlessly under harsh labor conditions. And I think... For me, this is the real important thing that we have to remember. When it comes to living out our faith, we've got to start by remembering our distinctive. When we forget who we are in Christ, it's easy to slip into the patterns of those around us. Start to believe what other people are saying about us. As the Israelites sacrificed their distinctive, they became a burden on the nation they were supposed to bless. If we sacrifice our distinctive, then we are not blessing the society that we came to bless. Then we become a burden on that society because we are not fulfilling our God-given call and our God-given mission. And so the Israelites became slaves. And I think actually they allowed themselves to become slaves in that decision. And I don't, th I don't think in the kind of flippant sense of they woke up one day and thought, you know what we'll do today? We'll become slaves. No. What they did is they submitted to slavery through those subtle decisions. Sometimes you don't even notice that it's happening, that slowly you're being enslaved by something around you. And so the Egyptians forgot Joseph. Why should they remember him? Why should they be the ones having to look back and go, oh yeah, I remember Joseph. He was a good guy. He saved us from all this stuff. Where was the next generation? Where was the next generation of people blessing Egypt? Where was the next generation of people after that blessing Egypt? 
And both sin and slavery, our identity is attacked. Your identity is undermined until you believe the identity that Jesus is talking about there. Slavery to sin. Rather than live distinct, the Israelites began to mimic their oppressors. And this is a, this is a story of um, the man who would be the one who leads Egypt out of um, slavery. But this is how it starts. One day Moses had grown up. After Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them hard at labor. Um, he's doing well for himself, by the way. He's in the Pharaoh's kingdom. Um, and he saw an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew, one of his own people, Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Revenge is not a kingdom trait. Death, murder, violence, they're not kingdom traits. So what's happened? Now Israel are starting to murder people to try and get what they want. That isn't, if you look at Jesus' life, that isn't what we came to do. That isn't what they were there to do. They started to imitate a different kind of kingdom. They started to imitate a different way of living. And so the question really has to be, were they living in that free gift of salvation, or were they earning death through sin? And so those first steps of forgetting identity in Christ, or forgetting identity in God and the distinct people, leads then to doubting whether God is really going to do what he's promised us. Every sin striving after one of God's promises took them away rather than sitting and resting in the free gift. And so, and so as we step into this, this kind of question of, well, what happens when we forget our identity? Like, we start to mimic different ways of living. And uh, the Ten Commandments we'll look at a bit more next week, this idea of educating people to follow God. But as we place other gods before or alongside God, we take control of our, our own destiny, and we are not trusting God to do that for us. When I say gods, I don't mean literal gods. Um, I don't expect... Um, that many people in today's society to be bowing down in front of a different God, and though we have heard mention of some of that already this morning, but actually in, in the West, a lot of the gods that we are, we're facing aren't literal, I'm worshipping another God, but it's worshipping a different kind of lifestyle. Perhaps it is work or money or comfort, and it's easy to get caught up in these things and ultimately put our trust in them and ultimately allow them to define who we are, rather than allowing our security in God to define us. Or perhaps we place another person, uh, put ourselves above another person through pride or through selfishness. We try and make our lives easier and more enjoyable by uh, increasing pain or heartache for others. And again, it's the subtle things that we're thinking about here. I don't necessarily think that w the world is filled with people who are evilly intent, but there are people who make these small decisions, perhaps to talk behind someone's back, and slowly and slowly and slowly that erodes our identity, and slowly we start to look more like the one that we are worshipping in that scenario, which isn't God. And the message that I want to bring as we look at this idea of Jesus in the Old and Jesus in the New Testament is that um, no matter how far we have gone, it is God who makes the first move. It's God who makes the first move towards us, 
not the other way around. When the Israelites forgot who they were in Egypt and forgot that they were supposed to be a blessing to all nations, it was God who made the first move. It was, we have to remember that salvation is a free gift and it's death that is earned. Through Moses, God made the first move and brought salvation from slavery through Pharaoh to Israel and the nations around it. Because what God does is in the middle of nowhere, there's a guy called Moses. He's run away after murdering that Egyptian person. He's in the desert and suddenly, out of nowhere, a tree bursts into flames and doesn't get burned up. And so he goes over to find out what it is and God calls him into a mission to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. Calls him into a mission. God makes the first move, not the other way around. And this is an act of exodus. That's what the word exodus is all about. It's escape from slavery. And it's a foretaste of Jesus because what Jesus does is he brings us on an exodus from sin and death. In Christ, God made the first move and brought salvation from slavery to sin to the world. Brought salvation from slavery to sin slavery to sin to the world. And I think we need to remember as we hear those words that it's God moving first again. And so we come back to John 8 again and uh, Jesus picks up that next line. So they've challenged, he's challenged them about being Abraham's children. or they, They're like, we're Abraham's children. We've never been slaves. This is Jesus' response. Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That's what Jesus says. If the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And he's challenging them in that very moment. He's challenging them about their identity. He's challenging them about where they are on this scale. Because the freedom that he is talking about comes from believing in him. It doesn't come from some right that comes from doing the right things in the right order at the right time. He's talking about something different here. He's talking about a different way of living, a different way of being. The Son has set you free. The Son has set me free. But what Jesus is saying here first is that for him to set us free, we must first recognize that sin is trying to enslave us, that sin is trying to trap us, sin is trying to ensnare us and make us slaves to sin and ultimately to turn us and the world around us into death, into dying and all of the stuff that comes along with that. We have to recognize that. And uh, in Romans 3, it says, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it's always God that makes the first move in each one of these situations. When we sin, God makes the first move towards us in compassion, not away from us. God makes the approach. God comes near. Last week, Alicia talked to us about um, Jesus in creation. And we think back to where we see sin first enter the world. 
You know, the uh, Adam and Eve, they disobey God, they take the apple, they eat it because they want wisdom, they believe what the snake has said to them. And what do we see? Who runs away? Is it God? No. Adam and Eve hide. What does God do? He makes the first move. He's the one who comes down into the garden. He's the one who walks amongst them. He's the one that deals with their sin and actually forgives them and brings them back. God came near to them in the Garden of Eden. It was God who moved towards them. And you're probably uh, familiar with the, uh, the phrase, um, take one step towards God and he takes two towards you. Has everyone heard that one? Yeah, variations of that. Um, not in the Bible, okay, in case you thought it was. Um, actually, probably most closely linked to uh, a uh, sort of Native American proverb, which is actually uh, take one step towards the divine, and uh, the divine will take seven steps towards you. So our God is only taking one step, uh, two steps, which uh, um, is a bit, uh, yeah, not great. Um, but, okay, I think there's, there's something about this here, because I think you can see a reflection in the story of the prodigal son, story of the prodigal son, that he is there waiting for his son to return. He's there waiting with open arms, and when he sees his son coming across the the hills, the plains, wherever, he runs towards his son. Again, an image of the father making the first move. He's the one who runs out to meet him. And in both the story of Joseph and both the story of Moses, they give us a foretaste of Jesus. They give us a foretaste of the salvation that he will bring when God makes the first move to completely remove sin and death from our lives through the free gift of eternal life by Jesus' death on the cross. And so I want to change that phrase, if it's okay with you. I want to change that phrase. It's not one step towards God and God takes two steps towards you. It's Take a step towards God, and you'll find him there waiting for you. He's already there, because that is who God is. That is who God is. He's the person who waits to meet you in your moment of need. He's the one who comes in, he moves into your neighborhood, and he deals with your sin, your death, your pain, your hurt. He's the person, he's waiting for you to come. Again, you look at that moment, beginning of John's Gospel, that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and moved into our mess, moved into our neighborhood and dealt with that stuff. So this morning, I want you to hear this message. That as we look at Jesus in the Old Testament, as we look at Jesus in the New Testament, we look at who God is bringing salvation to the world, that it's God who makes the first move and steps into our mess. He steps into our pain, into our hurt, and our heartache, and he deals with it in that moment. And when we make that step towards God, he's already there waiting for us, ready to deal with that stuff. And so this morning, we've, we've got a bit of space, we've got a bit of space to take some time to actually respond to this. Because when Jesus spoke this message, he spoke it... He spoke it to the Jews who believed in him. So when he's saying that actually the Son will set you free, he's speaking to people who've believed his message. They've believed him so far. 
And actually, in today's society, that's probably us to a certain degree. We're people who've chosen to believe that what Jesus is saying is true. But he's still saying that actually, if we hold to his teachings, then we will be his disciples, and then we will be set free. So we need to continually be remembering that we've got to keep taking those steps towards God. That actually, that there, is, there is none of us that can claim not to have sinned and not to have fallen short of God's glory. In this week, the week that's gone, whether you know Jesus or not in this place, you'll have done things that have put another God next to him, whether it's money, power, um, work, comfort, consumerism, materialism, whatever it is. And definitely we've all at some point done something that doesn't honor those around us. Maybe we've thought negatively about someone, spoken behind their back, done something that would hurt somebody else. There is a part in every one of us that falls short of what God is calling us to. And perhaps it's the first time you're hearing this, but I want us all to realize that whether we've, whether we've known God for years and years or whether this is the first time we're hearing this, that there is an element in each one of us that chooses to go and run and hide when God is there waiting to deal with our sin. And so I want to encourage us in this, uh, this last bit of time here just to take some time out to listen, to reflect, to hear from God and ask the question to ourselves, what is our one step that we need to make towards God today? Knowing the truth that he's there waiting because he's already made the first move. So I'm going to ask Mark to, um, to play us a song and actually just give us a bit of space. I'm going to pray for us. And then from there, I'd like to uh, allow us just to listen to the Holy Spirit, to speak and commune with God. Lord God, we thank you this morning for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him, you made the first move towards us. We thank you that um, by making that first move, it gives each and every one of us safety and security, that you are a loving and compassionate God. And that as we come to examine our hearts, as we come to examine our lives and the things that we do, the things we say, the things we don't do, we thank you that in those moments we can trust that you are good, that you love us, and that you are ready to forgive. And so we invite you now. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come and put your finger on areas of our lives where we know in our heart of hearts that we don't honor you, where we choose to reflect a different way of, of, of living, one that isn't a kingdom value, a kingdom trait. And we ask, would you help us to have the strength to ask you for forgiveness, the strength to repent and turn from those ways of living so that as you absolve us of our sins, as you set us free from those sins, that we could reflect more of your blessing. 
more of your blessing into the community around us, into our, our family and our friendship and, yeah, the community at large, Lord God. Let us be that blessing that you wanted for us. So we pray, come Holy Spirit and speak now. Amen.